Well, I'll have a confession uh, first off that, uh, like I imagine many of you, when uh, certain well-dressed and, and smiling teams come to my front door, uh, we also end up being too busy to, to open it. But one time, uh, we did have some visitors coming to the door that wanted to talk to me about Jesus and the Bible. And those are things that I enjoy talking about. And so this time I decided to go ahead and open up the door and, and have a conversation. Uh, over the course of a few minutes uh, with these gentlemen, it was astonishing how many things we agreed on. And it's everything that we said. It was just complete and utter agreement. They were about to wrap up the, the conversation and it was just like, well, you know, I had mentioned that I was a pastor of a Reformed Baptist church and so they knew that they didn't really agree with me and, and I knew I didn't really agree with them, but... It sounded like we did because as long as we're speaking broadly about what we believed, uh, we'd use the same terms. But once we start defining our terms, the differences become very clear. Uh, if you're in challenge A, that's the equivocation uh, and the fallacy detective, using the same terms but meaning something different. For example, if you were to research what the Latter-day Saints Church, I don't think they like being called Mormons anymore, but that's the same group. Uh, if you were to research what the Latter-day Saints Church believes, research on their website, uh, you would find them talking about Jesus as the Son of God uh, who died on the cross for our sins and is our Savior. I, any problem with those phrases? I, I like all of those phrases. But the definition or meaning of those words, and really any words in conversation, the definition, the meaning, what we're saying, is more important probably even than the words themselves. So when we say Son of God, uh, we mean the second person of the Trinity who exists eternally as God. Uh, when they say Son of God, they mean the first spirit child that God the Father created. Uh, God the Father who also was a man as we are, has a wife, and lived on a planet like Earth. And he wasn't the first and we aren't the last. See, the definition of terms like father and son, a big deal. A very, very uh, big difference between those two beliefs. Hopefully that's obvious. A very similar difference exists between Christian beliefs, the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses Church. So Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witnesses, use similar terminology, go to similar Bible passages, mean differences that are worlds apart. A long time ago, wise King Solomon taught that there's nothing new under the sun. That's certainly true and applies here to these differences of terms. And back in the fourth century, there was a teacher named Arius who proposed the same thing, that the Son of God is the first and greatest created being who then created everything else. And he didn't teach this as a Muslim or a Buddhist or as, any, as a Jehovah's Witness or LDS. Those things didn't exist yet. Uh, he taught this as a supposedly Christian teacher, which means that he went to God's word and said, yes, this is what this means. How could he do that, though? Like, how could he go so contrary to what we believe and, and use the very same word of God that we use to defend those things? Our passage today is frequently used to teach the creation of Christ. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not talking about the incarnation. Okay, so when we, when we say Jesus, uh, we, we sometimes uh, push that name backward to talk about the eternal Son of God, right? Technically, Jesus is, is with his human nature, Right? Two natures indissolvably joined, all those uh, specific ways of making sure that we keep two, a true divine and true human nature, not mingled, mixed, uh, but also not like, kept apart. Uh, so we say Jesus, or we say Christ. Christ is a title of kingship that, that Jesus received. So we say Jesus, we say Christ, say Son of God. Uh, we're looking both directions, past and future. So just to try to help make sure that we're uh, on the same page about this. But our, pa our passage today frequently used to teach the creation of the Son of God prior to, like way before incarnation. But is that what this passage says? Right, Jesus clearly claimed, I think we actually heard it from John 17 today. It was either today or last week. Clearly 
claiming that he existed prior to his birth as a human. But is he eternally God or less than eternal and therefore less than God? That's the question. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. I'll make it a little bit further this week than we did last week. Uh, But I was going to do all of this last week, so you're welcome. Speaking of the Son, who he has said he is the image of the invisible God. Here's where we're going to focus on today. He, the Son, is the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. According to Paul here, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord, is the firstborn of all creation. Clear as day, right? Well, we need to dig in on each part of this phrase to be sure that we understand what God is revealing to us in his word about his son. And actually, uh, other than the, uh, every one of these words needs definition. (laughs) That is what we're going to do. The firstborn of all creation. Firstborn. Firstborn. In the times of the Old Testament, it it was a big deal to be a man's firstborn son. Having this firstborn son meant that the father's family line could continue. Since the father was the leader of his household and his family, this firstborn son was the next in line leader. And upon the father's death, the firstborn son would be the primary inheritor of his father's and family's estate, receiving at least twice as much as any of his brothers. This leadership position, this enlarged inheritance was also called his birthright. Firstborn received as birthright a position and an inheritance. Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right, back in Genesis, Isaac had two sons, twins. Our church knows about twins. Isaac had twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn, so the birthright belonged to him. However, uh, Joseph, deceiver, tricker, tricked his father into bestowing the birthright blessing on him instead, and he did indeed receive that. So in this case, the firstborn did not receive his birthright. Later in Jacob's family, his firstborn son, his name was Reuben, dishonored his father so greatly that Jacob declared that he was not worthy of receiving his birthright. So the exalted position as leader among his brothers uh, and the double inheritance would be stripped from him and ultimately given to someone else. So even in these stories, even as early as Genesis, we can start to see that the blessings of being firstborn did not always belong to the firstborn. You see what I'm saying? Okay, so there, the firstborn in time, right, was a, was a position that deserved honor, but it didn't always happen that way. The word firstborn is very common in the Old Testament, 130 times. And whether referring to humans or animals, all but three of the uses of the word firstborn in the Old Testament are talking about being the firstborn. 98%. I don't know if you're good at math. That's a lot. 98% of the time, time is being emphasized. That's why first is in italics. The first one born, not the second one born, third one born, fourth, the first one born, 98% of the time, no question, that's what it's talking about. But what about those other three? How important is the 2%? I would say it's very important. I want to ask you a question. Would you rather see a movie that is awful or a movie that is awesome? Would you rather see a movie that is awful or a movie that is awesome? Thank you. A movie that is awesome. And unless any of you are trying to be clever, you know that that's your answer too. Well, if I'd asked you that question a few hundred years ago about a movie, you wouldn't have known I was talking about. But if it was about a book 
or if it was about a play or about a vacation to the beach. And I said, well, was it awful or was it awesome? Uh, You wouldn't really have an answer or your answer wouldn't have mattered because those terms meant the same thing. Meant the exact same thing. But language changes. Language evolves over time and words take on either different meanings entirely or different emphases over time. Uh, this is literally true of every word of words in every language, sadly including the word literally, which the Oxford Dictionary now has an informal definition saying that literally doesn't mean literally anymore, and I just don't know what I just don't know what to do about that. But a similar change over time can be seen with the word firstborn. A change happened. But it started even in the Old Testament. Two passages of those three that we're going to look at. Exodus chapter 4, early in God's revelation, early in the history of God's people. God says to Moses this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is an interesting passage because you actually have two different meanings of the word firstborn. Israel was a nation. Right? Israel is a, a man's name, long dead at this point. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob's been dead for centuries at this point. So he's not talking about a man. He's talking about a nation. And a nation, Israel, is referred to as the Lord's firstborn son. Let me ask you a question. Was Israel the first nation in history? No. No. Right? They went into the nation of Egypt, so there was at least one more. But you know, Abraham had come from Babylon, so there's at least two, and there's a lot more than that. Israel was not the first nation in history. They were the most important nation to God in his plan and for his purposes. They had an exalted position. This has nothing to do with time of coming into existence as a nation. They, they weren't literally conceived at all. There's another passage where firstborn is used, Psalm 89, 27. I believe this is actually a um, ex- exile psalm or a post-exile psalm. This is not written early. This is written late in the history of God's people. And in the midst of this, I mean, the psalmist is wrestling with, with wonderful promises that have been made uh, to a people who are now destitute and in exile. And, and perhaps they've returned back from that. But in the midst of this, he repeats a promise that God had made uh, to David. And he says this, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. I will make him the firstborn. This is the Lord's promise to David, more specifically to the kings in David's line. I don't know if you know stories about David beyond just David and Goliath, but uh, before that, you know, Samuel comes and shows up and meets David's family. Uh, was David the oldest son to his father? No, he was the youngest son. So not firstborn, like seventhborn. They don't even use the numbers anymore at that point. Okay, well, let, let's just make sure. Maybe, maybe it's something different that God's mean, God means here. Was David the first king uh, of the nation of Israel? Uh-oh. No, he wasn't. Okay, well, but Solomon at least would, would have been David's firstborn son, right? Oh, man. No. David was not a firstborn son. David was not a first king. His son, who became king, was also not a firstborn. Yet this, a prom- this promise applied to both of them. Why? Because they had been promoted by God to the status of firstborn. They were exalted to a place of highest significance as ruling the kingdom of God's people. It has nothing to do with first, has nothing to do with birth, yet we see that that position of highest uh, honor and leadership applied both to a nation and to a king, and it does not have to do with time. 
Hebrew poetry isn't the same as English poetry. Uh, one incredibly common form of Hebrew poetry is called parallelism, right? Parallel parking, where you're supposed to line up uh, with the side of the road, right? And parallel lines would never cross. These are uh, not parallel lines, right? Be perpendicular technically, right? Uh, parallel lines never intersect. And so what happens here, you have two lines to uh, this verse. I will make him the firstborn. And what parallelism means in poetry is that the second line actually uh, means the same thing as the first line. So if there's parallelism happening here, the same thing being stated in two different ways, what does it mean that God would make David and the kings of David's line the firstborn? Means that they would be the highest of the kings of the earth doesn't have to do with time, has to do with a title, has to do with a position. So we see two ways firstborn can be used. Time, 127 times, time is emphasized, 98%, but three really important times. The other times in Jeremiah refers to Ephraim as my firstborn son. Ephraim means Israel, so it just still works with the Exodus, that's why we didn't include it. Not hiding anything, <laughs> just tried to limit it. Firstborn, time or title. Birth order or importance. Literal, and I mean literal, literally. Literal usage or figurative usage, right? That's, do you see the difference between time and title? Over time, the word firstborn is used more frequently to communicate the importance than it is the physical birth order. So over time, throughout the, New, throughout the Old Testament, in between the Testaments and then moving into the New Testament, title takes precedence over time. The, the law of God is referred to uh, in, in apocryphal books of Jewish wisdom literature. The law is referred to as God's firstborn. because of preeminence, because of an exalted position. The same word, firstborn, appears eight times in the New Testament as well. There's Luke chapter two, verse seven, and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, where it is clearly used literally. That 98% we see into the New Testament as well. Jesus is the firstborn son of his virgin mother, Mary. He had no older siblings from her firstborn time, clearly. And in Hebrews eleven twenty eight, actually kind of tied with that Exodus chapter four of the killing of, of Pharaoh's firstborn son is the killing of all of the firstborn. And Hebrews eleven twenty eight, the night of the first Passover is referenced and the destroyer of the firstborn ones, firstborn sons from the 10th plague. Uh, five other times, it, is, it refers to Christ and the strongest emphasis is on the figurative meaning. We'll come back to these, Lord willing, in a few weeks because firstborn shows up again in Colossians chapter one. But then there is the clearly figurative Hebrews twelve twenty three, where believers like you and me are recalled the assembly or of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You'd be saying, oh, okay, so that just means that we're identified with Christ. Yes, but not necessarily in the way that you think. We preached on this, uh, whatever that was, two or three years ago. Firstborn in that passage is plural. So it's the assembly of the firstborn ones. So it means more that, it, it doesn't refer to Jesus. It means that more than one Christian, in fact, all Christians are firstborns. So either only the oldest children in each human family can be saved, hope not, or this is figurative. And I'm the thirdborn. Firstborn son, thirdborn child, it's a wash, but it doesn't matter because it's not what it's talking about. Figurative usage. So we see Old Testament and New Testament, figurative uses having to do with title more than having to do with time. Back to our passage. What is the focus or meaning of firstborn of all creation? What is this firstborn talking about? I believe that the passage is pointing to firstborn, I would almost capitalize it, as the figurative title, not the literal time. 
And in Colossians 1.15, where it talks about Jesus as the firstborn, it's talking about firstborn as a title, not as a time. But here's the point, and we're gonna, come, we're gonna touch on this a couple different times. Both of those uses, title and time, are possible looking at the word, okay? So it's not like, oh, firstborn never means firstborn. Yeah, it does, a lot, but not always. So just the number of times a word's used or what it means, that's not enough to solve this problem. I believe it's title, and we'll get to why in a little bit, because we need to continue through the passage to make sure. All languages are obviously different. I don't know how well you can see that. Some of those might make sense to some of you. Uh, We've got English, uh, Greek, Hebrew. Got to start on the other side of the page for Hebrew. Uh, Let's see, Latin, German, uh, which I don't know, so I'm trusting the page that I got this off of. I think then we've got Korean, Chinese, Thai, I don't remember what that one, French, and Spanish. And all of those things are, are all Genesis 1, verse 1. So they're all saying the same thing, but they're very different. Different letters, sometimes they're not even starting on the same side of the page. Uh, very, very different. All languages are different. And the New Testament was not written in the English language. It was written in the ancient Greek language. These two languages are very different, just like all of these languages are different. And one of those differences is seen in the word of. I've got a whole point in my sermon about the word of. Uh, if you're going to fall asleep, please stand up. This is really important. Don't, don't stand up. The word of. A couple examples here. This is talking about me, not the Apostle Peter. You could call me Peter of Connecticut. Uh, you could call me Peter of David. You could call me Peter of Hurricane. And I imagine that with a little bit of thinking or a little bit of knowing who I am, and no, I'm not going to tell you my mother's maiden name, my first pet, or my social security number. Uh, I was born in Connecticut. That's what of means there. It's like, oh, that's what, okay, I see that. It's not like a stretch. When I say Peter of David, uh, this is a really easy point. I'm the son of David. Uh, in the Greek construction, they would just say of David, and you would know what that means. Peter of Hurricane, what does that mean? It means that I live in Hurricane. And all those things can kind of be just communicated with the word of. And at first glance, you're like, what exactly does that mean? But then you understand context or know a little bit about what's going on. You're like, oh, I get that. I see how of can mean something different. You could have two different groups. Uh, the same basic phrase construction could mean something different. If I'm talking about a student of a class, it'd just be like picking one out of the class, right? Class is a group, and just pick one, a part of the whole. You could say that with of, but if I'm talking about the teacher of the class, I'm not really saying that just a part of it, right? Because a teacher isn't, isn't one of the class members. The teacher is what? The teacher is over the class. So the same class, you could have a student of a class. Uh, you can have a teacher over a class, but both of those could be just communicated with the word of. So teacher, whereas a student of a class would be part of a class, teacher would be like a title, be a position over the class, a leadership title. We see this in the Bible in different phrases like king of kings and lord of lords and god of this world, right? It's not just like there was a, uh, so king of kings. It's like, oh, let's just have a gathering of all kings and just pick one of them. And we all understand. What does king of kings mean? Switch the word, king of over kings, right? Lord over lords. Uh, God of this world, you know, Satan didn't, didn't grow out of it. As is referred, it's lowercase g because it's the God of this world, referring to Satan. It's the God who is ruling over this world. All these things are titles. Teacher, king, lord, God. In other words, of can mean a lot of things. <laughs> If you are a language student, I'm talking about a Greek noun in the genitive case, which means 30 more things than just possessive. You don't need to know about that. Just remember of if you have no idea what I'm talking about. In Colossians 1.15, the Son of God is said to be the firstborn of 
all creation. Well, does Paul mean that Christ is the firstborn, first created part of creation? Is he a part of it? Or is Paul saying that he is the firstborn, a title, over creation? First created part of, firstborn over. Well, since I already said I see firstborn as a title, uh, the best option, I would say, is to see of as meaning dominion over. However, like with firstborn, both of these options are possible. So we need to continue considering the passage. Firstborn of all creation. Every year on my birthday, I get spoiled by my wonderful wife who makes a delicious cheesecake for me from scratch. She's amazing. And we enjoy it on my birthday as a family. Well, imagine that the next morning, uh, Elise wakes up. She wakes up first in our family. And she comes downstairs looking forward to a piece of cheesecake for breakfast, opens the fridge. She can't find it. And she's, she, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Starts wandering around the house and sees me laying out on the couch, moaning and rubbing my stomach. Dad, she cries out, what's wrong? And, and where's your cheesecake? I ate it. I reply, all of it? She asks incredulous, incredulously, uh, all of it. Now, what do Elise and I mean by all of it? Uh, did, I, did I remove, this is gross, did I remove the cheesecake eaten uh, by myself and other members of my family? Did I remove those and then consume them? Is that what I mean by all? No. I didn't, she's not saying every piece of the cheesecake. She had eaten a piece the night before. So had Leanne, so had some of my other kids. Definitely Lily, that girl loves cake. <laughs> oh, she loves cake. Even though we both said all, we, we meant all the rest. This is the same argument made regarding all creation found in verse 15, but by those who would seek to lower Christ. All doesn't always mean all. I've said that very same thing because all does have different definitions in different parts of scripture. So is all here, is Paul saying all the rest of creation? Is he saying everything else? Or is he saying all, as in everything? Some say Paul is saying all the rest, that God the Father created the Son, and then the Son created everything else. So we have to ask, is that what the Scripture teaches? It's really very clear, no. No, it is not. There's no two-stage aspect of creation. The Bible presents one creator, God, and one creation containing everything that has ever been created. Genesis 1 begins with this in mind. In the beginning, God is already present. And he begins his work of creating everything that exists. John 1 elaborates on this. So great that John uses the same language, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Like, oh yeah, I know how this goes. And then John does the same thing. In the beginning, and instead of saying in the beginning God, he says in the beginning was the word, was already there. Time started, creation began. The word is already active. The word already exists. The same beginning spoken of in Genesis 1 where the word, who is God the son, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things then were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. You can't say it clearer than that. Well, what do you mean by everything was made? Do you mean everything else? No, I mean that nothing exists except by him bringing it into existence. Very clear. All created things were made through the sun. Without the sun was not any created thing that was made made. There's no Christ is created, then Christ creates distinction that fits here. Can't get it in Genesis 1. You can't find it in John chapter 1. And unless you insert it, you're not finding it in Colossians 1 either. The Bible teaches us that God is eternal. From 
everlasting to everlasting, you are God, the one who inhabits eternity. No beginning. Everlasting doesn't mean a long time ago. It means forever. Like before time could be measured, God is. I am who I am. Eternally existent, eternally present. God had no beginning. God created everything. The Bible teaches these things. God has no beginning. God creates everything. Then teaches us that Christ, the Son of God, is God and is creator. Meaning Christ is eternal with no beginning. That he created everything, not everything else. He created everything that was made, not everything else. But like firstborn and like of, the word all can be used in a variety of ways. So if you're just thinking about the word, like the illustration that almost started to prove the contrary to my point, all could be all the rest or it could be all the all. And that's true in Colossians 1.15. But my position, of which I have no doubt, is that Jesus is the firstborn, notice it's capital F because it's a title, the firstborn over all of creation, not the first one born as part of the rest of creation. He holds a title. He has a position over everything created. A number of other English translations, which I encourage you. Uh, we, we preach out of the ESV. Many of you carry ESV. I'm a multitude of translations kind of a guy, right? Read many. Look at all of them to get a, a rounded out picture of different ways that uh, good, godly scholars are thinking about and trying to communicate the word into our language. Uh, The NIV, uh, the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, the New King James Version, all have this translation, that he is the firstborn over all creation. The New Living Translation makes it even clearer. Uh, They footnote uh, the the words. They they footnote firstborn of all creation. So not like they, they missed what it says by words in the text. But here's the translation that they give. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Right? They get what firstborn of all creation means. It means the firstborn title over dominion, all creation, everything that exists. So this is what, this is what I say clearly. This is what um, we can say orthodox Christianity for Generations and generations and generations have said about this. But is it what the text is saying? Or are we following the teachings of men starting in the fourth century? Are we, are we just followers of Athanasius versus Arius because one was more popular in a council than the other? One, maybe one was a better arguer? Is that where this is? Is this some sort of a loan from a Greek philosophy type thing? That's, that's the accusations that are made. Or... Does the passage help us to understand this? Because here's a really important point. Context determines meaning, not just word studies, right? You could do word studies and find Christ as the first created being who is a part of the rest of the creatures that were made. You just do word studies. Well, what does it mean somewhere? Okay, well, it's gonna mean that here. If it's just word studies, that's what you get. But word studies, what a word means in one place, it doesn't always mean everywhere else. We don't talk like that. I promise you, you don't do that. That's the equivocation. I, I do that to mess with my children, right? Make me a sandwich. Poof, you're a sandwich, okay? Like, I just, you're changing definitions to mess with somebody. A word doesn't mean what it always means in every circumstance. And then poor children are just forced to try to think of everything really very specifically Elise has succeeded so well, sometimes I just can't twist what she's saying, and I'm <clears throat> so, so much consternation on my part that I can't do that. Context determines meaning. You have to look at the verse. 
you have to look at the passage as a whole unit. Uh, This clause is part of this sentence. This sentence is part of this paragraph. This paragraph is part of this chapter or section. This, This section is part of this book. This book is part of the book. You have to look at all of it and allow the context to tell you what it means, not just like cherry picking something out and being like, well, look at this other verse, so this is what this means, Jesus is created. Context determines meaning. So what does the rest of the passage say? Paul actually explains what he means that Jesus is the firstborn. We could say, well, why is Jesus the firstborn? And he gives his reason for Jesus rightfully holding the title of firstborn in verses 16 and 17. That's what four means in verse 16. He's the firstborn of creation. He'd be like, well, why, Paul? Let me tell you. Why is Jesus the firstborn of all creation? For by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Why is Jesus the firstborn? He created everything. By him, all things were created. Well, what kind of all things? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at the text and see. All things in heaven and on earth, he says. By him, all things were created. Follow along. All things in heaven and all things on earth. Earth here means the planet that we live on, the elements it contains, every living thing that inhabits it. Heaven could mean everything in the universe outside of earth, as in sun, moon, stars, planets that fill our galaxy and the countless other galaxies that exist. He could be speaking of of earth as this place and heaven as in the, the heavenlies as in outer space and everything that's there. Or earth could mean the physical universe, including planets and stars. And heaven could represent the spiritual realm that exists separate from our physical universe. And there's different ways that the word heaven or heavenlies is used throughout scripture. Uh, sometimes it's the sky, right? Where the clouds are. Sometimes it's, it's outer space. And sometimes it's the spiritual realm of, of where God's throne room is, where the angels are, where demons exist, uh, where the saints of the departed uh, believers have gone. And the prison of hell for those who have not trusted in Christ. These things are not, you're not going to dig down in the earth and find hell. You're not going to take a spaceship to a planet and find heaven. It's real, but it's not in the physical universe. There is a spiritual realm. Both of these are possibilities. Is, is heaven stars or is heaven heaven as we normally think of it? Either one would be true. Both are true. I think he's emphasizing physical versus spiritual uh, because he goes on to say that the Son is not just the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, he's also the creator of all things visible and invisible. Not hard to see, unseeable. He's recently spoken of God as invisible. Not, you don't have a big enough telescope yet, but you cannot see him. He is not able to be perceived physically by his creatures. I think that that applies here as well, that that's what Paul's talking about, visible and invisible. The visible things are part of the physical universe that we're a part of. The invisible things are the spiritual, I want to say universe, spiritual realm of angels, demons, etc. Well, how do you know that? Well, if only the text could elaborate. It does. All things in heaven and on earth, all things visible and invisible. What do you mean by invisible things, Paul? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These invisible things, these four terms that he's listing are not talking about positions of power or authority here on earth filled by men. So if if we were trying to update this, we could not say visible and invisible, whether presidencies or czarships or uh, or kingdoms or or, uh, dictatorships. That's not what he's talking about prime ministerships, these invisible things are some sort of spiritual rulership occupied by angels or demons. You look at uh, books like Daniel, you look at books like Revelation, talks about thrones filled not with humans and not just by God, but by something angelic. And then you talk about texts like in Ephesians where there are principalities or powers, same type of words that are happening here. So apparently there are 
dominionships, rulerships occupied by angels and demons that exist. Well, what exactly does that mean? Uh, how? Uh, where? Who? Over what do they rule? You know, Frank Peretti had some ideas about that, but it's a little bit fanciful. That might be a lost reference for some of you guys. Well, I've got a great answer. I have no idea what exactly are the realms and divisions and hierarchies, and nobody else does either on earth because it hasn't been revealed to us in God's word, right? There are different classes of angels. Some of them are higher archangels than others. What ex- does that mean that he gets a throne? The other guy doesn't. We just don't know, and they're not guys. But I do know this. I do know Christ created all of them and that he rules over them because that is what this text says. Christ cannot be a created spiritual being and also be the creator of all spiritual beings. And he is not a created spiritual being because he did create all invisible spiritual authorities here. He circles back. All things were created through him. What kind of all? The exhaustive, unlimited, universal kind of all. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the firstborn over all his creation, which includes everything apart from God, because he is the creator of all things that are created. Jesus is the firstborn because he created everything. Jesus is the firstborn because he inherits everything. Do you remember the firstborn had the birthright? It was a position who also received a special inheritance. We see that emphasized here as well. Who created everything? The Son. Who was everything created for? The Son. All things were created through him, end of verse 16, and for him. Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation because he also will inherit all of creation. It exists for him to rule over and receive as his inheritance. His inheritance includes a people and it includes a place and it includes all praise. Listen to Psalm 2, God's promise to his son who would be his king. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage or inheritance. I will make the ends of the earth your possession. It is for you. According to Philippians 2, he will likewise receive the praise that is due him from every knee in heaven, every knee on earth, every knee under the earth. All of creation will bow before him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is his inheritance. Everything. Everything. And it was created for him. Christ Jesus and his unmatched glory is the goal of all of creation. Not, not, it didn't become the goal. It wasn't like, oh, what are we going to do with this? I know, this will be neat. What if we took all this and then we, we eventually made it about Jesus? It's not what the text is saying. It was created for him. Right? His glory was its goal at its inception. It was created through him. It was created for him. He created everything, so he's the firstborn. He inherits everything, so he's the firstborn. He precedes everything, so he's the firstborn. Verse 17, he is before all things. Perhaps Paul is thinking of this as a time reference, that Christ existed before all of creation. Now, this word could also be emphasizing his rank, similar to firstborn, that which is above or that which is before in its importance. Christ is above all of creation. Both of these are true. Both point to his superiority. Both of these point to his greatness. Both of these options before in time, before creation came into existence. Yes, Christ existed already and he is higher than all of creation He precedes everything, so he's the firstborn, and he sustains everything. In him, all things hold together. In Christ, the firstborn, the Son of God, all things hold together. All things owe 
their continuous existence to Christ. Raise your hand if you're part of all things. You owe your creation and continued existence. Oh, I didn't raise my hand. That was slip. You owe your existence in its inception and its continuation. The only reason you exist is because of Christ. That's true of everything. We see the same idea communicated in Hebrews 1 verse 3. In that passage, it says, Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. He spoke it into existence and he speaks its existence into continuation. So with a word, it could all just vanish. That word won't be spoken. There are promises to be fulfilled, but it's that kind of power from galaxies to gravity to the seasons to protons, electrons, and neutrons. Everything that exists continues to exist because Christ sustains it. Why is the sun gonna rise? Christ. Why does stuff fall when you drop it? Christ. Why does water freeze and it's turned into a solid? Christ. Why, why is there the heart here and not down here in the human body every single time? Christ. All of creation only works because of Jesus. Now, he didn't start it and leave it, right? He started it and he keeps it. It's all because of Jesus. Could you be more exalted than this? You can't. This is why he is the firstborn Paul's point really is very clear. If you don't like cover it all over, take words and cherry pick from other passages, there's no question as to what Paul means. The first thing to be made as part of the rest of it, how do you get that looking at verse 16 and 17? Only if you're trying to insert something demonic and unbiblical. If you just look at the passage, let Paul speak for himself This point's very clear. Jesus Christ, the eternal, uncreated Son of God, reigns as the firstborn over all creation. So what? So when you hear a knock on your door and you see the smiling faces of two visitors wanting to talk to you about Jesus, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of believing their false teachings about Christ, and you don't need to be afraid about whether you're smart enough to convince them of the truth of the gospel. That is not something that you need to be afraid of. And not because like, oh, my sermon was so good that you all get it now. No, you see, you're not smart enough to convince them of the truth, and I'm not smart enough to convince them of the truth, and and actually no one is smart enough to convince anyone of the truth. No one can be convinced of the absolute truth and sufficiency of scripture, which is what this is really based out of. No one can be convinced of that by force of argument. You can't talk a dead person into resurrection. And that is what is necessary. You can't convince them on your own, but you don't have to. That's why you can speak the truth with confidence and compassion In scriptural authority, you can speak the truth of the Bible. You can make arguments. Well, look, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying about firstborn, but look at this passage. It doesn't mean that all the time. Let's look, let the word speak for itself. And you can make those arguments and you can share the gospel, but only the Holy Spirit can bring the dead to life. So we share without fear. We pray and we trust the Lord to do that work. That's the first, we want to call that application to these things, and there's a second. The second is worship Jesus. That's, that's what this passage is about. Like, it, it bothers me so profoundly that something that is supposed to be exalting the magnificence of Jesus, like this passage, would be twisted into saying the exact opposite. And I hope it bothers you as well. This is supposed to be lifting Jesus up to the highest place, which is his, by right. And somebody would be like, oh, actually what this means is that, you know, there's us and then there's him. No, no, dig a hole 
a thousand miles deep, put you down there, right? Then shoot a rocket ship at light speed up. That's where Jesus is. And actually, sorry, that's, that's pretty far from reality. Like that's the category. You know what? It's not even a scale. It's two different things because there's a distinction between creator and creation. Our Lord Jesus Christ is amazing. Worship him. The descriptions and titles given to him throughout scripture are astounding. Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, the image of the invisible God, the redeemer of sinful people, the firstborn over all creation. One author called these titles of majesty. That's who Jesus is. He's our redeemer who delivers us from our slavery to sin. He's the image of the invisible God revealing God to us. He is the firstborn who reigns over everything as creator and sustainer, and he is absolutely worthy of our worship and our praise and our faith and our lives. You know what's perhaps the most astounding thing of all of this is that this majestic firstborn who reigns over all creation as God did not count equality with God something to be grasped onto so he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a, of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, humanity. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All of creation is for this firstborn and for his glory, and yet he entered it subjected himself to death on the cross. God's love for us clearly displayed by Christ's death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and this is what we remember and proclaim together each time we come to the Lord's table. It is the firstborn who has offered himself on your behalf. So as you prepare yourself to receive the bread and the cup, in remembrance of Christ, in remembrance, remember, remember his greatness as the firstborn of all creation. Your creator, your sustainer to the present moment is the one who died to be your savior. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.